But in my opinion, if somebody doesn't have a basic steeping in economics, evolution, and thermodynamics, like the world is literally magic. And I don't mean magic in like a whimsical kind of cool way. It's as in you are ignorant to the point of being illiterate in the shit happening around you is mm -hmm. you have no agency in the way that things are playing out around you. Like you are so ignorant of the way that the world functions. And I know I sound like a dick saying this, but if, if you don't have the, that basic background and there are great videos, you know, like thermodynamics for kids, that's all you need. You don't need all the, the math. You need the conceptual basis. Thomas Sowell has this thing, economics in one lesson. That's all you need. And you need to really then stew and noodle on it and start playing with it. And these things can really enlighten someone. We stand today. The Business Method. The business with method. a shadow. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring high-performing entrepreneurs and high-caliber people dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs that have built seven-figure businesses that can be ran anywhere in the world. And currently, we are interviewing 100 major influencers to get behind the minds and the science of using influence to grow business, affect income, results, economies, and cultures, especially post-COVID. Since we moved into a post-pandemic world, the landscape has changed drastically for most business owners. We're finding out what is working for the entrepreneurs out there that have positioned themselves well to make sure their businesses thrive, succeed, and continue to experience growth in this current economy. And now... Let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. Hey, gals and pals, listen up real quick because we have something exciting to share with you. First, for you high-performing entrepreneurs out there, we've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 episodes that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just two to eight minutes long. These high-performance episodes are being published on Monday and Friday each week and will be labeled as HP number 1234567891010 and so on. Those episodes are live now and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content when you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered to you as soon as they are live. The next thing I wanted to share with you is about our private mastermind community for established entrepreneurs. If you have an established business that has good momentum and wanted to be involved in a higher level mastermind community that is curated specifically for entrepreneurs that are moving at the same speed as you with similar challenges, revenue, team size, and business niche, then we've got a group for you. Our private mastermind groups are facilitated by myself, yours truly, and my good friend, Adam Anderson. Adam is a seasoned entrepreneur who's been involved in 20 plus startups over 20 years and recently had a multi-million dollar exit. I keep the members on track with their goals, productivity, and optimization, and Adam brings the vast business knowledge to the groups. Our purpose with this private community is to help you reach your business goals faster so you can remove yourself from your company and focus on bigger and better things. You can learn more about that private community and masterminds at thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. That's thebusinessmethod.com forward slash masterminds. And now let's hop into today's show. The Business Method. 
Entrepreneur, New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author, paleo expert, and former research biochemist Rob Wolf is on the podcast today. You may have heard Rob's name before from his books, The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Rob is the former California State Powerlifting Champion, an amateur kickboxer, and jiu-jitsu enthusiast. He is also the executive producer of the film Sacred Cow, the host of Healthy Rebellion Radio. He has served as a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and as a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. Rob has successfully turned his passion for food, health, and paleo into a successful online business and personal brand that has led him to create multiple books, online courses, and products around health and nutrition, eventually leading him to a seven-figure book deal. We're going to learn how Rob built his business, nerd out on some high-performance health topics, and throw out some controversial questions at him about health, diet, and paleo. Rob, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. Really good. Uh, honored to be here. And we'll see how my backwoods Montana internet connection holds up on this. It, it's barely above dial up. So we're we'll, crossing, we'll do our best. crossing our fingers. You know, we've interviewed people in Brazil <clears throat> and uh, Singapore and, and, and myself being there as well from some of the most remote places on earth. And it always seems to work out one way or the other. Um, I, I did this interview. I interviewed... Um, Bobby Edwards, who is the founder of the Squatty Potty. And mm-hmm. at the time I was in, I was in Rio de Janeiro and I was at this co-working space and the co-working space started to get really busy. So I had to go to a back alley, um, to do the interview where I barely like got connection from the co-working space and Bobby had just come off the view. So the, the number one, um, show for, uh, daytime show in the United States, right. he just come off the view, hopped into his hotel room. And then he came on to my podcast where I'm sitting there in the back alley of Rio de Janeiro interviewing him. And I thought to myself, Oh my God, like how's it, but it turned out great. It turned out fantastic. That's so, awesome. so if we can handle Brazilian internet, we can handle uh, Montana internet, I think. Just, just for a little bit of posterity, some of the cable or the wire that carries this signal was installed in 1895. Whoa. Did they even yes. have, I mean, what kind of cable is it, that? It's just copper cable. It was used for like telegraph at that point. And so no I have some, way. some. You telegraph three internet. century old. <laughs> yeah. So some some of this signal is being carried over a, a copper wire that is wrapped in paper and lead and was installed in 1895. Wow. That can carry an internet signal. Wow. So That's, I would go out on a limb and say the uh, the Brazilian internet was probably better than mine. But yeah, just as an aside. Yeah. <laughs> fair, fair. So did you, I know you just moved up to Montana. Did you refurbish a house there? Is that why you have the telegraph cable? No, no, no. It's just a very rural area and the population density is so low that there's no incentive to do anything additional on on the like infrastructure front. And so I'm uh, waiting with fingers crossed for Starlink to to maybe try to pull me back up to like 50 meg download or something. So, yeah. 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 You got to love that there's still places like that because, you know, a lot of I mean, so much of the world is just so 
technologically advanced, you know, with what we have going on. But then there's places literally, even in the United States where you have telegraph cable, that's bringing the internet to you. Right. 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 <laughs> and I mean, when it goes down, I'm like, okay, my work day is done. So that's, that's mm -hmm. it. So, yeah. yeah. When I, when I lived in Latin America, same thing, I would kind of hope for the rainstorm or the rainy season. Cause I knew the power right. would go out a few times a week and it would right. give me an excuse to like take a full break and not yeah. like have to do more and more and more. So, yeah. Cool, man. And um, so I'm super glad to have you on the show. I want to dive into, because this is a business podcast, you building this business around this movement and a personal brand before we dive into the nuts and bolts of health and, and high performance, because I'll, I'll nerd out on that the whole show and forget about the business part quite often when I get guys like you on the show or people like you on the show. So where did so I know you were California State uh, powerlifting champion and an amateur kickboxer. When did it kind of come to fruition that you could realize you could take this passion that you had for health and and start creating a business out of that? Oh gosh, that that's a really good question. I really always thought that I was going to be kind of in academia or kind of more mainstream medicine. So I did an undergrad in biochemistry and was in mm. queue to to pursue either a medical degree or a PhD or possibly a combined MD PhD course. And um, right around that time, I actually had a really severe health crisis. I, I developed ulcerative colitis so bad that they wanted to do a bowel resection and all kinds of terrible stuff. I'm about 165 pounds right now. I'm five foot nine. Mm -hmm. um, at the low ebb of my ulcerative colitis, I was about 125, 130 pounds. So I, I was, if you imagine 40 pounds less of me right now, like right. I was a, a disaster, Skinny, you know? Yeah. And, and so in figuring out that situation, which is what got me into like ancestral eating and the paleo diet, like that really resolved my ulcerative colitis issues. When I started putting on this evolutionary biology template, like, like viewing the world through this evolutionary biology lens, I, I was just like, I can't do standard medicine. Like I can't do eight years of learning about chronic degenerative disease, emergency medicine, which is all cool stuff, but it wasn't really where my heart lied, you know, lies with this stuff. Like I really like to get out ahead of what the, the problem is and, and do something about it. So I was honestly kind of casting around for what I was going to do. I just couldn't imagine doing a, a, uh, a medical degree at that point. The, Research opportunities in this space were really limited. Now there are some really amazing people like Dom Diagostino and a, a host of researchers that if I wanted to plug in and do say like metabolic driven research, that is really where my, my heart is. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities now at that time, it didn't even exist. Like people weren't even, they didn't even have a box to put this type of stuff into with the kind of research and academic level. So I really didn't know what I was going to do. And, uh, I, Part of what I did do was poke around on the internet looking for training information and stuff like that because I kind of split, you know, half of my time in a gym and half of my time in a lab. And I found this weird workout called CrossFit. And this was around 2000, 2001. And I showed my buddy, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL. And uh, uh, he's like, this looks cool. Let's start working out in the mornings. And, and you know, we refurbished his garage into a gym and hung up gymnastics rings and all that stuff mm -hmm. within about three or four months, I, we had 15 people that we were training. Like we just 
talk to coworkers and his neighbors would be walking their dogs while we're working out. They're like, what are you guys doing? Well, oh, we're working out. If you want to join us, you know, and before we knew it, we had a, a kernel of what would be, a you know, a, a garage gym setup. And I reached out to the Greg and Lauren Glassman. They said, Hey, we love the methodology that you guys have put out. Uh, my friend Dave and I would like to open a gym. We'd like to call it CrossFit. Can we do that? And they were like, yes, go be achieve. And uh -huh. the crazy thing there, that, that was CrossFit North, which was the first CrossFit affiliate gym. And then I had an opportunity to move back down to Chico, California, not long after that. And I opened a CrossFit NorCal, NorCal Strength and Conditioning, which ended up being the fourth affiliate gym. We were open for maybe four years before there was an affiliate agreement or any type of like legal binding documents. Like, I mean, it, it's interesting. It was so wild west and, and kind of uh, a handshake and goodwill in the beginning of that. But that is where like the gym interface was absolutely where I, I knew that I could affect change that I believed in. You know, we could get out ahead of the type two diabetes, neurodegenerative disease, start rebuilding muscle mass on people to prevent age related sarcopenia, muscle mass loss, and which feeds into all these other problems, you know? And so right. that's where I started all this stuff. So it was a, a health crisis that, you know, led to a solution and the solution opened my eyes that the, the mainstream route through this, this you know, problem is not where I want to go. And so I didn't, I wasn't one of these, I was a little bit entrepreneurial as a kid, like I would mow lawns and stuff like that, but I wasn't one of these, you know, where it's like, I'm going to be a businessman. Like right. I, and you, you know, it was just in my DNA. I kind of, I, I fell into it. And if anything, I really, even 23 years downrange doing this stuff, I really like helping people. And I really like having a sense that what I do matters and that, you know, it'll leave the world a better place and everything. And I knew that if I could bend people's ear about this ancestral health model, get them moving a little bit in that direction, make them aware that their sleep is important and their food is important and, and community and all these things and help them to foster that, that it could really make profound beneficial changes for them. And so I, I, I kind of stumbled into it, but it, it's really been a, a, a boon for me for sure. I, I love that it came out of the total desire to help people. Right. And, and we get, we find so many people, you know, they'll read the, the book, the four hour work week and they'll want to create an online business and they'll want to live some like location independent type of life where they could work from anywhere in the world. Uh, but they just don't know where to start. And, and often like we'll talk to individuals like yourself that it all started from a desire to really help people. And so mm -hmm. for, for those individuals listening out there, maybe that's a really good idea to, to look within yourself. It's like, how do you, how can you best help people? How can you best serve people? And when you serve people, then the evolution of the business can, can form around that foundation as opposed to the foundation of just creating a business to, to give you freedom and figuring out then what to do. Sometimes both work, right? And they both right. create amazing things. Um, but I love, I love listening to, to your story and how that all came to fruition through you. And I'd like to ask Rob, like in the structure of the business, 
Is there, has there ever been a part of it? So you went from basically creating gems to, to what was the next part? Like creating gems, uh, becoming a quote unquote similar, like a personal brand, whether you were mm -hmm. trying to or not. Right. And then what was the next part of the business growth for you and your team? Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I would say, even though I put up a webpage, robwolf.com very early on, I would say uh -huh. that I've been very, um, slow in like developing a specific, like personal brand. Like it uh -huh. is like, yeah, I'm Rob and this is my website, but here's all this information. Like, don't worry too much about me. Like here's yeah. this stuff that's, that's going to help you. So I didn't go really for the jugular of like, Hey, I'm, I'm this like, on not online, you know, fitness celebrity thing. And, and honestly, at the time that we did all of this, that wasn't even quite really a thing. So right. my first book was released in 2010. I started a podcast at that time to support the book. And honestly, the, the podcast was a, a response to the just unbelievable amount of inbound emails that I would receive with questions. Mm -hmm. So many interesting questions, but I type at about 15 words a minute and I, I speak at, you know, 400. And so I, I, you know, there this new thing called podcasting at that time. It was reasonably new in 2010. And so I spun that up and it, it became one of the top podcasts for quite some time within that, that kind of health and wellness space. I think we have 28 million or 38 million downloads of the first show. And, and wow. so again, this was a very organic process and it was mainly the format of the show initially was just Q and a, like people would, would uh, write in questions and then we would do our best to, to answer the questions and it was super popular. But again, it was just mainly trying to figure out a way to, to help people. And mm -hmm. looking back, there were all these opportunities for me to monetize a whole host of different things. And I, I, I really did a, a terrible job of that, you know, looking back from a business perspective, but I, I always, um, I was kind of like, well, if I provide enough value, then there will be something, you know, like people will buy enough, enough of the books and do some of the other things, but the book came out and then, um, I started doing a, a eight hour nutrition seminar around all over the world. And I did that mm -hmm. for probably four years, three and a half, four years. And, uh, that was a ton of fun. And I, I just continued to learn a lot and I, I built a lot of, I guess, goodwill and kind of social capital around that. And, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that progressed into maybe 2014. I started getting an inkling for writing a, a second book. Like I, God okay. bless Barry Sears. I really like him. Like the guy that wrote the, the zone books, like okay. they're really influential, very, very good stuff. But Barry created like the zone and then it was mastering the zone and then reentering the zone and then the green bean zone and the soybean zone. And I, I just couldn't do that, you know, and my publishers were like, there's so much opportunity here. But if, if I, I realized this late in the game, but I, I, I'm a, I guess I'm a little bit of kind of an idealistic artist in this regard, where if I don't have a passion for the thing, even if there's a really good potential payday for it, it it's hard for me to motivate myself to do it. Whereas yeah. if there's something that I enjoy doing, there's, you could stick me in a box in Siberia and I'll figure out how to do it, uh -huh, you know? So yeah. it, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but I, I wrote that second book. We had the podcast, and this is where we started to spin up some things like uh, I developed an online course called the Keto Masterclass, and mm -hmm. we just started getting into some of the online marketing, and we kind of 
we missed the golden age of online marketing. Like we did very well with it, but if we had released that two years earlier, um, we'd be having this conversation from like my private island in the Bahamas. Or <laughs> you know, it, it, it there was a time where you could put cat feces in a bag and sell it on Facebook, right. and you know, right. so long as you just you figure out the algorithm and you put one dollar in, you get three dollars out, and you yeah. just like bam, you press play on that. And we we got into it where you had to really be crafty about how you you got a positive ROI, and that thing has kind of a life cycle to it. And interestingly, also, it was around 2016, um, Google had updated its algorithms multiple times over the years. And mm -hmm. so I would get a very high-ranked podcast, and then it would get cratered. Like, they would rejigger things, and then you rebuild back up. But uh, Google did this OWL update around 2016. Myself and a good number of other people in this low-carb space, like I, I lost 97% of my site traffic overnight. It just went yeah. effectively to, to zero. And we were experiencing some really significant problems on Facebook also. Like it, we hired the best Facebook ad agency in the world. They're like, we can sell anything. And they're like, we can't sell your stuff. Like you're getting shadow banned. And there's a whole kind of long mm. history behind all that stuff. But I just realized that I am 100% beholden to these, you know, tech, you know, giants being able to reach my audience. And so this is where we, we spun up the healthy rebellion, this kind of private community. And we, we did a pivot on the podcast and went back to our old email list. Like we'd always kind of grown and cultivated that we will prune it so that we get good open rates and and that type of stuff but it's a really engaged group of people it's not massive but it's it's also non-trivial in size and so we we went back to to a spot that almost ironically looks like early you know mid 90s you know it's almost like going back into a, an online forum or something from the mm -hmm. mid 90s you know and just really tr did everything we could to decouple from social media, the Google algorithms and all that type of stuff. And I honestly wasn't sure if that was going to be the end of the road for us. And I was going to have to pivot and do something entirely different. But uh, fortunately, so far, it's been a really, really good move for us. But I, I, if I've had one kind of superpower, I've been able to see pretty far down the road. Like um, I told Greg Glassman 10 years ahead of when he would have his 10,000th affiliate and I missed it by like three months. I'm like, you're going to have it oh, by wow. this date. And it actually okay. took him a little bit longer. I'm pretty good at seeing these trends. And I really had a sense back in 2016 that, um, folks kind of in this, uh, contrarian medical and health perspective, particularly on kind of the low carb paleo keto space, they were going to run afoul of whatever the, the internal, you know, goals are of outfits like, like Facebook and Google, like they're, I think that it challenges a lot of the accepted health dogma. There's a lot of, of drama around the, the perceptions of animal husbandry and climate change, which is right. I did the book and film sacred cow, which really tackles a lot of that. But I had the sense that there was going to be an expiration date and how long and how effectively I could reach people online. And so I, really decoupled from that and, and plugged into this thing that I had an ecosystem that I had pretty much total control over, um, as much as possible. And, uh, we went with a platform called mighty networks and, uh, Gina Bianchini, who's the CEO and founder of mighty networks. She, 
the stuff that she's said and and written about strikes me as being fairly libertarian and and kind of like standing up for people having the opportunity to say what they want to say and and do mm-hmm. it in a, a way that you know if you say something stupid okay there are consequences to it but if you say something just contrarian should you be deplatformed should you should right. you have you know your the the bandwidth to your stuff like pinched off because uh, you know, the power brokers don't agree with it or don't like the message or whatnot. But I saw that stuff very early on and tried to warn people about it and also really um, tried to firewall myself from all of that influence and knock on wood. But I think we've done a pretty good job with that. Can you tell us, Rob, 2016 sounded like a transformational year for you. I, I'd like to know a bit about maybe some time in growing the business in the earlier days when you were concerned with whether the business was even going to make it or not, you were having financial troubles, how you kind of either dug yourself out or figured or or just stayed committed to the path of serving people or, um, and helping people during that time. And and it sounds like 2016 was part of that because you were questioning, questioning whether that was even going to continue or not. But how about in the earlier days? Was, was there a time uh, that came up for you? And, and if so, what did you do to, to, to keep going? Man, that, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and this is, it, it's a long story. I'll try to be really concise with it. Okay. But the, the first two years that my wife and I ran the brick and mortar gym, we worked a part-time physical therapy assistant job also to support the gym. Like we were putting money into the gym because we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. We had no systems. Um, This is an interesting, like kind of how the sausage is made backstory on CrossFit. Like Uh Greg Glassman deserves a lot of hat tips for changing the face of fitness, but he also had uh, this weird paranoia that if people learned how to develop a business system around CrossFit that the folks would then take the methodology, add it to a business system, and then go out and basically like supplant CrossFit. And I guess that that could have been a a possibility, but he did just about everything in his power to keep the gym owners as ignorant and incompetent as they possibly could. So anybody that suggested systematizing the business, having some software like MindBody Online or something like that to run it, like any yoga studio, any, um, any facility that deals with youth sports where you're checking people in and you've got this high throughput, anybody with any sense does stuff like that. But when Mm -hmm. we plugged into that scene, um, nobody had any type of, you know, systemization with what they were doing. And we actually did a mind body university, uh, seminar, which was very oriented towards growing a yoga business, but we learned a ton from that. Like we need a beginner program. We need to emphasize personal training, you know, and Mm -hmm. we started building all of that out. But the first two years of running the gym, I I still have our, our tax records on this. We made less than $10,000 a year total as a couple, (laughs) those first two years. And the only reason why we were able to make it is that we were in a totally shitty little, uh, you know, 400 square foot apartment. Both uh-huh. of our cars were paid for. And fortunately, nothing on them broke during that time. And and I just knew that there was a way to make this thing go. Like I knew that the transformative power of that methodology was awesome, but we had uh-huh. to figure out how to scale this thing, you know, and and fortunately, my mo- my wife has a great background in economics and and just has a great business sense and so she sat down and kind of 
okay, well, how much money do we want to make out of this place? And she'd put a, you know, kind of a benchmark in the sand. And then she just back engineered, okay, that means we need this many people. And if we assume this churn rate, we want to always work to reduce the churn rate, but we're going to need this many people going through the gym. And so we, you know, we just started building out that, that process to do that. And mm -hmm. it, it, uh, there's the, the, somewhat of a heartbreaker is you will put as much energy into a brick and mortar facility like a gym, or I guess it could be a coffee kiosk or whatever, as you're going to put into like a technology startup, like you were going to work your balls or ovaries off. I like that mentality. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing to keep in mind is there is not remotely the potential upside of right. something that could potentially scale. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you you don't do it. And I, I have a friend that, that opened kind of a co coffee kiosk and it grew into a small, you know, roadside coffee stand and he absolutely loves it and he makes a decent living doing it. And he just loves the community and he's, he's good. Like he, he likes all that, but if you have some, but he's also wedded to that, you know, he's at a spot now where he can take vacation and go out and do some other things, but it is not the four hour work week. It is not a set it and forget it you know, business where you run it from, you know, the back alleys of, of Rio or something <laughs> like that, you know, it, it is completely dependent on his at least intermittent check-ins with this thing to keep the thing going. Like he establishes the culture. And so, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, from like the e-myth perspective, it's not this, this, um, franchisable replicatable kind of entity i guess it, it could, could be if yeah. you really got in and did yeah. something with it you know but yeah but it's just something to keep in mind like if if money is the primary driver i'd be a little bit careful about what you plug into like you need some thought about what might be scalable but sometimes you don't know like uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know it's it's uh, a lot of these service-based businesses i think because i know i'm bouncing around here a lot but i think customer service experience continues to get worse and worse and worse, whether it's going to like a big box Home Depot type thing. And you want to ask somebody a question about like, well, you've got 50 different barbecues here. Like, why should I pick this one versus that one? And the guy's like, I don't know, that one's nice. And it's sucks. It's like, it's yeah. totally ridiculous. There's, there's not that sense of going into your old hometown, you know, uh, 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 mom and pop, mom and pop uh, shop. Yeah. Shop and having some, Oh, well, what do you do? What do you want to do? And he asked me five or 10 questions. He's like, this is the one you want. And here's the list of reasons why. And you're like, okay. And now every single thing I'm ever going to buy is going to come from you, you know? So right. I think that there is an interesting opportunity, even though tech has tried to algorithmize customer service because they don't want to pay people to provide that interface it's so frustrating and it sucks so bad on a, a, an experiential level that I think there are even brick and mortar type things or, or, you know, higher touch, uh, interfaces, the electrolyte company that I'm a part of element, we really have doubled down on the customer service side. We're, we're not outsourcing it. Everybody's native English speaker, um, you know, and, and, uh, we pay them very, very well to do outstanding customer service. And so we, if we drop the ball on something, we fix it. We, we fix it by three, you know, and then people are like, wow, this is outstanding customer service. You've got a customer for life. So I do think that if people look at business opportunities where they could plug the hole of shitty customer service, like the product's got to be good. But then right. when you, when you actually start thinking about like how much user interface, so like if it's a supplement company or something like that, like you're going to have some sort of inbounds of like, well, what are you know, is your stuff uh, USP or, you know, what do you do to validate the purity and everything? 
really have outstanding customer service on that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is going to be a comparative advantage going forward. And again, maybe it doesn't scale the way that Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff scales, but also I'm kind of beginning to wonder if Facebook and Twitter won't be a, a blip in the history books, because I don't know that those things are long-term sustainable the way that the interface is, you know, and the, yeah. the way it, it, it just kind of uh, creates a very frustrating experience in that whole whole ecosystem. It's very possible. I, I wanted to ask you on the topic of customer service. Um, you said you fix it by three with your, your company element. What does that mean by 3 p.m. or times three? Or what does that mean exactly? It, it, it's not a real number, but it, it, let's say a, a box arrives and in the the. the it gets mashed in shipping and let, let's say it wasn't even our problem. We're like, no problem. We're sending you out a replacement box, use that one or give away the samples. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And, and it, there's not even a hesitation. There's not like, well, did you do something there? You know, it's like no problem, bam, done, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, we, that, that's just the way that we address it. If the thing is late, we'll, we'll, send the person like a credit for a free box or like a discounted box or something like that. Okay. When you run out, here's your next one. It's on us or like it's super, super, uh, discounted. And, and we just, um, we don't nickel and dime on that customer service interface. I mean, Costco is a little bit this way. If like you've had a coffee maker for six months and it breaks, you take it back. Some people, if they've had the coffee maker for six years and it breaks, they take it back and Costco's <laughs> like, fine, whatever, you know, uh -huh. some degree that's the, you know, how many people buy something from Costco's because they're like, well, if it breaks, I'll take it back. Like that yeah. isn't, and, and there's no drama. You don't have some ridiculous person like, well, do you have your receipt? It's like, well, you've got a documentation of everything I bought, you know? So yeah. it, it, it's just easy. And that customer service experience is really, really nice. Yeah, it, it really makes it so nice to have that type of experience because then you get this 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 ingrained loyalty to mm -hmm. like, hey, you know, I bought some elements and and the package didn't come came two weeks later and and instead of going to another company, you're giving me, you know, you say you're gonna give me a free a credit and then send it out like the next day sort of thing. And it's like, oh, okay, like they really want to make up for that. I heard this story, and I think this is one of the reasons why Walmart has has um, scaled the way it has and been in business so long. Um, I heard this story that an old man came to return his tires uh, that he he bought at Walmart, and um, and so the customer service department um, didn't argue or anything. They just they just gave him the money back. And, um, it turns out the tires weren't even sold at Walmart and it was, oh, wow. he, he just got confused, you know, as an older guy and he just got confused <laughs> on where he bought it or something like that. And Walmart's like, it's okay. We'll give you a refund. Da, 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 da. And, um, and give him a, a refund. Um, and, and also on this, I've seen this in a lot of gyms and in, in jujitsu gyms, we were uh, on an earlier topic, we were talking about bringing in the, the online platforms and online marketing, um, to gyms to, to help them scale and grow and, and 10th planet, uh, did that. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of neat. Like I, I like to go into a jujitsu gym or even a yoga studio now and then, 
and see if they have systems set up for their mm -hmm. their customer acquisition. And I've even been to jujitsu gyms where like if you sign up for the first month, you get a free t-shirt sort of thing. And then they, they have continual um, emails that go out to you, automatic uh, emails to get you to come back in. And my yoga studio down here does that really well. And uh, it's, it's cool to see that inter integration because then you can see the scalability of these companies more so to keep um, um, like to sustainably grow over the right. long term. Right. I, I want to ask you, Rob, before we dive into some some fun health topics, you said that you have good insight in seeing the future for for business or for in following trends. And I'd like to know if that was natural or you feel like that's something learned. And then also maybe your mindset or thought process behind that so we can learn from that. So other entrepreneurs out there can figure out like how we can be better at following trends and getting into the future or understanding the future of our business and predicting it more accurately. Man, that's a good question. I, I think it's a little bit in innate, a little bit inborn, but uh, mm -hmm. a lot of the way that I, I, we all have filters for the world, like the way that we kind of make sense of what's what's going on in the world. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of using evolutionary theory, like this kind of big, you know, Darwinian evolutionary box as mm -hmm. a a way to look at things, because uh, you know we're in this. COVID pandemic and like there's all kinds of, of implications about what we should or shouldn't potentially do based around evolution, like mm -hmm. um, throwing a, a vaccine at a virus that is super specific, like we're only encoding the spike protein of the, you know, instead of coding all the proteins in, in the, uh, the, the genome of the virus, mm -hmm. it's brilliant on the one hand in that it's very targeted. And it's very dangerous on the other hand, in that if that virus evolves around that spike protein, we're screwed. Right. Like it, so there's a major danger in doing that from an evolutionary perspective. Time will tell us whether or not that gamble was worth doing. But this is something that uh, almost nobody in the medical scene mentioned. Evolutionary biologists mentioned it. They're like, hey, super cool technology, but there is this danger here, you know? So a lack of evolutionary understanding costs a huge amount of money in lives every single year, because even mm -hmm. like our, our health epidemic, like we keep t telling people eat more or, or eat less, move more, eat less, move more. This is completely at odds with our basic evolutionary biology. Every organism on the planet is evolutionarily wired over multiple billions of years of evolution to eat more and do less to be as efficient as possible. Okay. But now because of technology and whatnot, we're in a situation where we produce far more calories than what we would ever need. And we do far less than what we've ever done in the past. And so mm -hmm. we need a strategy other than just admonishing people like, you know, push away from the table and, and all that. So I, I, evolutionary biology is a really powerful tool for, for looking at things. Um, basic economics, which is just resource allocation, you know, where do different resources go and how do they get shuffled and, and reallocated, I, I think is an indispensable tool for making sense of the world and kind of making predictions about um, uh, energy flows and, and goods and, and services flows. And then the actual energy side itself, which is thermodynamics, which is this branch of physics where we consider the energy inputs and outputs of a system. So like ethanol as a, a like green biofuel, is this a good idea? Mm -hmm. And 
some people say, yeah, it's great. It's replacing gasoline. Well, when you look at the process of producing ethanol, it costs more energy than what you get out of it. The ethanol farmers don't run their factory machinery on ethanol right. because it would consume all of it and leave nothing left for them to sell at this government subsidized price. And so, you know, economics, evolution, and thermodynamics, I think are these things that really, it doesn't always provide you the answer. You need to be able to ask the right question. And sometimes that that's really challenging. But in my opinion, if somebody doesn't have a basic steeping in economics, evolution, and thermodynamics, like the world is literally magic. And I don't mean magic in like a, a whimsical kind of cool way. It's as in you are ignorant uh, to the point of being illiterate and you and this shit happening around you is mm -hmm. you, you are not a, a, you have no agency in the way that things are playing out around you. Like you are so ignorant of the way that the world functions. And I know I sound like a dick saying this, but um, <laughs> if, if you don't have the, that basic basic background. And I mean, uh, there, there are, uh, great videos, you know, like thermodynamics for kids. That's all you need. You don't need all the, the math. You need the conceptual basis, you know, in like, uh, Thomas Sowell has this thing, um, economics in one lesson, that's all you need. And you need to really then stew, you know, stew and noodle on it and start playing with it. And these things can really enlighten someone. And, and interestingly, like, when I uh, gave Greg Glassman that prediction around like when he would hit 10,000 affiliates, I did a little bit of market research and this was back like 2002, 2003. So very early in this, this whole, I guess, 2003, 2004, now that I think about it. Um, but I looked at how many strip mall Taekwondo studios are there in the United States and where do they tend to cluster with regards to population density and how long did it take for them? Like even back then, I believe there was a, a Google trends analysis and I just kind of did a little bit of a, a regression analysis on that. And I was mm -hmm. like, Oh, if we extrapolate this out, we'll probably put it right around 2010, 2011. And that was right, right when CrossFit hit its, you know, 10,000th uh, affiliate. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think having some of those global um, heuristics to look at the world that, you know, provides a really good opportunity to then take different market segments or pieces of information and do something mm -hmm. interesting with it versus just getting waylaid by that, by, you know, the way that the world's rolling out. What were those three things that you mentioned, Rob, uh, evolutionary biology, economics, and there was something else? Thermodynamics. Thermodynamics. What are yeah. good resources for all three of those that you would recommend? So it, it, literally like ther thermodynamics for kids. Okay. Is, it, and there are some videos out there and then economics for kids or or there's a, a piece from a, a really world famous economist, Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L. -L, uh -huh. And it's economics in one lesson. Okay. And, and then on the evolutionary biology side, like, uh, evolutionary biology for kids, like this is a great spot where you, uh, you know, go onto YouTube and just put in like evolutionary biology for kids and, okay. and, uh, you're, you're off and running on that. And if you want to go a little bit deeper on it, that's great. But again, um, all of those things get pretty math heavy pretty quickly. And if you have that background, that's great. It's helpful, but it, it's not necessary. Like it's a very concept based idea, you know, like on the evolution side, um, if there is a pressure applied to a living dynamic system and there's, you, you know, 
things will tend to try to adapt around that pressure or that choke point. And the, mm-hmm. the, the coronavirus is a really good, you know, timely example of that where the virus itself has a good number of proteins in it, but that spike protein is really important. It's the way it makes access into the body. So it makes sense to make a limited, uh, uh, vaccine just coding for that spike protein. But the problem is that the virus doesn't need to do a whole lot of shuffling or changing so that that, if that spike protein changes enough, the vaccine potentially no longer works. Right. And so this is some, some e- comparatively easy stuff to, to start looking at uh, different challenges and evolution doesn't just apply to biological systems. It applies to any complex dynamic system, economies, online markets, you know, like if, if, uh, what, what are we seeing even on the censorship side? Like as some of these kind of tech oligarchs kind of pinch folks in some areas, we see, you know, ev- evolution and innovation in other areas. And it's hard to predict exactly where it's going to go. That's where some of the wild cards come, but mm-hmm. you can fairly safely say, okay, if, if people want to express ideas and have outlets and whatnot, but they're being suppressed, there is going guaranteed going to be evolution attempts at evolving around that choke point. Right. Um, so I'm guessing based on how you described evolutionary biology and the COVID vaccine that you decided that you probably didn't get the vaccination or I, I didn't. Um, I, uh, I actually had COVID in November of last year. Okay. And so I, uh, and, and I'm pretty metabolically healthy. And so I, I was, uh, I think that these mRNA vaccines are going to be amazing tools going forward, like the Mm -hmm. potential that they have for cancer and uh, neurodegenerative disease. Like it's such an amazing technology. I do, however, one of my predictions is that we're going to find that specifically going after the spike protein may prove to be an absolutely catastrophically huge error and, Mm. and, uh, and not, out of malfeasance or anything like there was, there was good thought that went into it, but they maybe should have done the spike protein and one or two other proteins so that there was a right. broader complement of things that, that the, the virus would need to adapt around. It doesn't need to adapt around a singular thing. There might be three things it needs to adapt around right. instead. Yeah. Does yeah. the flu vaccination do that? Does it, as opposed to being focused on one spike protein, does it, not you know. quite in the same way because, and you know, maybe something like uh, measles would maybe be a, a better okay. example. If you can vaccinate a population ahead of exposure to a, a pathogen, then that immunity can get set up and there's basically a wall there. But okay. when you are vaccinating amidst a pandemic and, and amidst uh, uh, people being exposed to the pathogen, the pathogen may be active in a person or multiple persons while they get vaccinated. And mm-hmm. so now you've got this process where the body is trying to wrap up, ramp up immunity stimulated by both the, the pathogen and also the vaccine. But in that time, there's an opportunity for some genetic shuffling to occur and the mm-hmm. opportunity for this thing to evolve around that. And, right. and the, uh, the influenza viruses, tend to have a higher mutation rate anyway. And so it's kind of expected that like every year there's going to be a different variant. Um, Coronaviruses generally are not super high mutation rate viruses, not compared to influenza. So this is where like, if we could have 
known about this, knew it was coming, had a vaccine ready and then vaccinated the whole population, then we, we would have, in theory, had this very solid unified wall of, of uh, immunity. And then right. it, would have, it would have been like a, a wave hitting against a, a really big you know, brick, brick wall breaker. It would have just kind of fragmented and, and been done. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's so such an interesting time, right? With <laughs> things that are happening. Right. And we're liable to get canceled for just mentioning these peripheral <laughs> things. It's like, that's not even the focus of the show, you know, but this is kind of the weird, the weird time that we exist in where um, information itself is, is uh, viewed as being really dangerous and, and hazardous. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're you're passionate about it, uh, have you ever experienced being canceled? I know canceled this quote this term is just relatively new, but I mean that uh, having your community or haters, um, you know, really come down on you and getting negative press. Uh, so maybe in the earlier days, like, did you ever have cancel culture or haters or or negative press come out that was that was hard for you guys to deal with? Yeah, and I mean the irony it, it, out of uh, CrossFit originally, just okay. just to yeah. to air some dirty laundry out of that again. <laughs> uh, uh, Greg Glassman, brilliant guy, and I owe a ton to him for doing what he did. But um, he didn't tolerate or accept uh, independent thought it, within the organization, okay. and if you didn't totally toe the party line, um, big big problems happen. And like I alluded to. Um, People that suggested that we needed some business systems and there needed to be a graded on-ramp to beginning CrossFit and maybe all these movements aren't totally applicable to all people. It got them super angry and we really dug our, our heels in. The big challenge that occurred for us is our gym compared to any of the other gyms in the CrossFit community was disproportionately successful. Like we were really just like orders of magnitude more successful just based off of income, the ability for us to pay our trainers, the ability for, for us to pay for basic things like health insurance and whatnot mm -hmm. for our trainers. Like this was unheard of in that scene. Right. But we didn't run our brick and mortar day-to-day -day facility at all the way that CrossFit HQ suggested you should do it. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to educate people about, well, if you want the success we have, yeah, use this methodology, but here are the ways that you need to to change all this stuff. And we ended up getting kicked out. Eventually we got kicked out in, in 2009 in a pretty, pretty, you know, spectacular fashion. And Greg enlisted lots of people within the community. And it would basically be a phone call and like, Hey, you need to go jump on these people with both feet. Mm -hmm. And then these folks would show up online and like, Oh, Rob and Nikki are horrible people. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. It was uh, several years of drama uh, around that stuff. And the kind of ironic thing is that a number of other people in that early CrossFit scene got caught up in this. They too caught some of the collateral damage and they experienced some of that like er cancel culture before cancel culture was really a thing. And these people have kind of gone on to be uh, significant participants in the cancel culture phenomena themselves, which I find fascinating because they experienced it like they were at the pointy end of the stick in experiencing uh -huh. it but they've found topics that they feel morally justified in in you know participating in this stuff and i just don't know if they they see the parallel there or, or what but it, it it was interesting but yeah we we had that early on and i mean to some degree just doing what we're we're doing i mean it hasn't been like full on cancel but like we uh 
we were sponsoring JP Sears, at, you know, as mm -hmm. part of Element for a period of time. And and uh, and honestly, I, I love JP. Like his stuff is amazing. And I think he, you know, and I, I think um, comedians should kind of be given a pass. They should be allowed to say just about anything that they want to say. And if you don't like them or whatever, then you ignore them or maybe right. you make your own point counter to that. But when you start shutting down comedians and you look back at the long arc of history and the other people that, that shut down, suppress comedians, artists, sat satirists, mm -hmm. those aren't good people you're keeping company with, you know? And, mm. but, uh, we, we had a pretty dedicated campaign when a group of folks went after JP, they also went after anybody that was sponsoring JP and mm. they, they started going after us pretty, pretty strongly too. And they wanted us to throw JP under the, under the bus. And, and, you know, and we were, we were in the process of just ending the business relationship with him, but uh -huh. we weren't going to do this extra step of like tap dancing on his grave. I, I was like, if we burn the business down, then we burn the business down, but I'm, I'm not, I am not going to participate in this additional step of all mm. this stuff. So we've, We've had brushes with it. And again, me even talking about it on here is liable to foment the the fires of, <laughs> of these, these people Throw again. Some fuel, but I, some fuel. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I think that this is important stuff for people to contemplate because it, if you believe strongly in it, you know, that somebody is saying something that's not true, certainly don't patronize their stuff. Maybe even spin up some material in like detail where you think that, that they're wrong or, or whatever. But, um, creating a, a mob to like deplatform them and, and whatnot. I, I just, it's amazing to me that people don't realize that that can be weaponized and it mm -hmm. will leave nobody left. There is, there is no one who is so clean and so pure that they won't at some point end up on the bad side of that. And we've, yeah. we've seen this in these really totalitarian regimes, you know, like uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia, the, the, you know, the, Marxist Leninist revolution and mm -hmm. it ends really badly. And I'm, I'm still continually stunned by these uh, seemingly well-meaning progressive minded people who don't, you know, if you've got something you want to rail against, by all means rail against it. But I don't know that trying to cancel the person the way that is available now with like cutting off their, their, um, deplatforming them and whatnot. Like I, I just find that so dangerous and uh, yeah. uh, it's happening on medical topics on kind of social political topics. And I've always been the, the person that's like, Hey, let's get in and debate. And, and yeah. it, you know, if you disagree with me, make the better argument and then I will change my mind. Yeah. Like I will, you know, and then you've, you've got a, an advocate now instead of an adversary, but God damn, if somebody comes and just starts <laughs> trying to deplatform me and everything, then it's like, okay, you've got an adversary now. And yeah. now you've got another adversary, another adversary. And we may be quiet for a long time, but then maybe we band together and, and, and you know, now you. that she was on the other <laughs> foot, you know, and now we're, we're back into some sort of weird, um, Oh God, what, what was it like? Uh, uh, what, what was the term like uh, blood packs or whatever? It's like, uh -huh. Oh, you killed my brother. So now I need to kill your yeah. brother, it, you know, and it, it just goes on forever. So yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the, the, the truly progressive way would be to, before you shout out and start to tear people down online um, or on any media source, um, is to, one, try and understand why this person has a different frame of thought 
and two, have a conversation with him. And when that happens, most of that uh, reptilian brain triggering the amygdala, right, uh, is quite often diffused. And then you develop empathy and that's progress. And that's right. really the progressive way, not um, shouting out it's somebody because of toxic masculinity or, um, you know, they believe in a diet that you don't believe in and yours is better than theirs, that sort of thing or whatever it may be. Right. 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 And that's, that's true progression there. Um, okay. Uh, I'm loving this by the way. Like I'm, I'm loving picking your brain. Awesome. And if you want to delete any of this, I don't blame not you. Deleting like, I know any it's of it. I know no it's way. dodgy <laughs> stuff. So. Okay. No, 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 not hardly. Uh, okay. So I learned something about, uh, I was going through your website and and podcast and doing some some research about your stuff before I came on you came on the show, and I heard a term that I had never heard before, and it's testosterone crash. Mm. And um, you know, as a male, like I want to make sure I have healthy testosterone levels. Um, I have a friend who's in his fifties who is contemplating, and he's been contemplating for a couple years now getting testosterone injections because he wants to continue to have that drive. And I, I hadn't heard this term before. So, and you just released a podcast on it, I think, a couple episodes ago. I would love to learn more. Tell us what a, a testosterone crash is. And, and how it's affecting us um, as men and, and as people. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the term was actually part of the question, so I didn't ter coin that, and it's not something okay. I usually use, and, but, but the, the folks, the person that, that submitted the question put that in. But if, if most people are familiar with the idea that like, if you do some really hard training, um, androgen levels can drop both testosterone and estrogen. And so this makes it applicable to both men and women. And the, the phenomena is, is similar. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, because of, uh, you know, testing around Olympic sports and athletics and whatnot, people understand that good hormone levels are actually beneficial for performance. So there, you know, and there was, a, there's another funny thing within mainstream medicine for 70 years they were like oh th this doesn't really matter even though we're banning anabolic steroids and oh anabolic steroids don't really work and you know it's just kind of mm -hmm. ridiculous this this weird uh, blind spot there but aging in general can and typically does reduce testosterone and, and androgen levels but there's an interesting caveat to that when we look at the testosterone levels and I, I will focus more specifically on, on men here, just because it's simpler. Like I did a, okay. a podcast on, on hormone replacement therapy with my good friend, Dr. Kirk Parsley, and he'd be a great guest, a, a entrepreneur, retired Navy seal, um, yeah. amazing guy, but we focused on men and then we got some hate mail. They're like, well, why didn't you talk about women? And I said, one, I don't understand female endocrinology remotely as well. And the reason why is it's at least 10 times more complex. Mm. So I'm actually commenting on something I understand versus getting out over my ski tips and saying stuff that may be totally wrong, you know? So, um, but the testosterone, the average testosterone levels of our grandparents or our grandfathers was about three times greater than what it is now at like any given age. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, so, you know, the 70 year old grand grandpa or great grandpa had shockingly higher average testosterone levels than people do today. Uh -huh. Um, that's a problem uh -huh. when, when mainstream medicine looks at testosterone levels, they take what happens within the norm. So like a population of people going through the front door, 
they check their testosterone levels and the normal ranges go from as low as 200 up to as high as 1100 within say like uh you know 18 to 25 year old population i guarantee you the life experience of the guy that's 25 years old and has a 200 total testosterone is shockingly less good than the person who has an 800 or a thousand Mm-hmm. total testosterone level. So this is another problem is that normal is a meaningless term. What's optimal for you. Right. And this is where it would be really handy if folks 18, 20 years old could get a baseline, you know, total testosterone, free testosterone, sex hormone, binding globulin, uh, estrogen, estradiol, growth hormone, cortisol, because that is your youthful profile. So your friend who's 50 years old, 50 plus years old, he's thinking about going on HRT. Well, how much does he need? What types? And, you know, how should it be administered? And if you don't have a, a youthful profile, it's kind of hard to, to figure out what's going on there. But all that stuff said, so as a background, there seems to be a lot of pressures pushing testosterone levels down. And we don't know exactly what it is. Maybe it's poor sleep. Maybe it's poor diet maybe it's xenoestrogens in the environment. Like a lot of the, the, uh, constituents of plastics are these, mm-hmm. uh, estrogen mimetics, which may be causing problems with, uh, testosterone metabolism. Nobody knows exactly what the, the, the primary driver is, or if it's, you know, multifactorial that that's going into it, but it, for sure, like men are experiencing and women are experiencing significant hormone dysregulation on, right. on a lot of different levels. And, uh, hard training can, can crater testosterone. Uh, I think when, when some research has been done on seals before they go through buds, like the, the hell week where they, they keep them awake for, for a week and they go through this selection process, their testosterone levels can go from like a thousand to 150, like basically hypogonadic by, by the end of the, the, the one week period, like burning it through all of it, or, yeah. it just production cru- okay. plummets, you know, it just, just gets crushed. Yeah. That, okay. that super heavy duty stress just ends up smashing these, these folks okay. and, um, female athlete triad where they overtrain, underconsume calories and then experience hormonal dysregulation. This is very similar. Like they're, they're, mm-hmm pushing their body too hard in too many different directions at once. And the hormones end up kind of cratering as a, mm-hmm. as a consequence. So there's a lot of things. It, and again, I don't, I don't actually really like the term like testosterone crash, but it, you know, there's, there is this uh, different situations where baseline testosterone or androgen levels can plummet. Like if we, uh, new parents, like they feel like garbage for a host of reasons and mm-hmm. the sleep deprivation causes a lot of different hormonal changes, not the least of which is, is testosterone. Right. Um, well, I have a theory I want to run by you. This is absolutely fascinating. I love this. Um, and, and so, and, and maybe it's this theory and I've been thinking about it for a while. Maybe this theory is backed up by the fact that grandma and grandpa or grandpa had much more testosterone than kids these days do. Right. Um, and I was thinking about this and, and there's this, there's movement of, uh, men are being emasculated and maybe this is why we have less testosterone. And a lot of people will blame it on a feminist movement or whatever. But I was thinking about that, my grandparents and, and my great uncles, uh, and great aunts. And I thought like, like, People pre really 1950, but even pre like 1920 or 1900, 
men were men and women were women because quite often survival depend on depended mm -hmm. on that. That mm -hmm. was their jobs, right? My grandpa was a Purple Heart um, in World War II, right? He fought a war. He worked in a factory at General Motors. He was around men uh, a lot doing a lot of manly things, manual mm -hmm. labor, right? My dad, too, was a construction worker and building things, right? Doing male type of dominated jobs. And and you think about even my generation. So I'm, I'm 40. And even my generation was much more about being indoors, sitting behind a computer, mm -hmm. um, getting to understand a computer, even more so for kids that are under 40 and even under 30 and under 20 now, right? And so the, they're not doing primal things that a human is kind of designed to do, right? And, right. And, and one, that could very much be the reason why a lot of boys are emasculated and two the, the it could be the reason why testosterone levels are so low and even estrogen as well because females are like well all we're doing is sitting we're all doing the same thing sitting at computers and doing stuff and pushing buttons and and playing on our phones and and that is dominating the vast majority of our day mm -hmm. what are your thoughts behind that because it kind of for me it makes sense I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, what would I haven't dug into this literature in a long time, so you know the internet will find out whether or not I've got this right. Okay. But uh, traditional cultures that follow more traditional um, sex or gender roles uh -huh. don't seem to have the same decline in uh, androgen levels that we see in more more you know westernized developed countries. Androgen but relating meaning. So, Sorry, androgen the, meaning testosterone, testosterone and estrogen. estrogen. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Being the biggies. Yeah. 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 That's my catch all. And, you know, so that we're getting both males yeah. and females kind of, kind of uh, tick both those, those boxes, boxes there. Yeah. But then there's a lot into that. Like these folks eat generally a less processed diet. They tend to get more sun on their skin. They do more physical True. activity. There's clearly a relationship between physical activity and um, health, like, too little physical activity in, in testosterone and estrogen don't do as well as they could. Too much, you know, that's a problem too. So there's mm -hmm. kind of a, a sweet spot in there. Um, and then like community and, and having that community. I like having female friends, but I mean, honestly, like I have my wife and then I have a few female colleagues that I do some work with, but then mainly my circle of friends, the people that I spend time with are, are males. And yeah. When I was younger and um, my female friends were potential sexual conquests, then mm -hmm. I had a lot more female friends. And now right. that I have an Italian wife who would bury me in a shallow grave if I, if I had any dalliances, <laughs> my pool of female friends became very skinny after that, you know, because uh -huh. it's like, yeah, this it, like I, I, I had nefarious designs on on this thing, you know, if we're right. just completely honest about that. And so. I think that there is something to that and, you know, that psychological sociological piece of this where, um, this is again, where that evolutionary biology story is really valuable, you know, and like Jordan Peterson has talked about some of these studies, like in, in Sweden, where they really develop some interesting social systems so that women could men and women could kind of pick the stuff that they wanted to do and what they were trying to do was equalize access for women to go into science and engineering and and you know traditionally male uh uh dominated professions and what they found is the exact opposite happened 
women mm-hmm. disproportionately went into caretaking roles, not universally, not uniformly. And men tended to go more into deep sea welding and engineering and, and science and, and stuff like that. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and a lot, a big part of that appears to be like personal preference. Like mm-hmm. when you ask these people, the, the women, everybody who went into caretaking, whether, whether they were male or female, they're like, I derive a huge sense of satisfaction from the caretaking of others. I would probably put myself in that. Like I could have probably really enjoyed being a nurse or like a physical therapist or something like that, because that caretaking piece was mm-hmm. probably really relative, particularly as a male, I think that I derive disproportionate satisfaction feeling, you know, doing that, that kind of caretaking piece. And then in general, uh, uh, lots of males like, they like that concrete, like engineering, math, science, mm-hmm. that, that type of stuff. Like they, they like dealing with the concrete. They like having a discrete problem Mental that they can get in, be challenged by, mm-hmm. and then have a discrete endpoint to it, you know? Right. And I do derive some satisfaction from that too. Mm-hmm. So I try to balance both those things, but I think that you're onto something there. And this is where stepping back and looking at that bigger evolutionary biology picture, like there's a ton of factors that are changing there and mm-hmm. probably all of them play a role. Like our environment is dirtier. There's xenoestrogens. We've dramatically altered kind of the, uh, the social contracts we have about what being male and what being female means and, and all that type of stuff. And so I think that there's a lot of things that could play into that for sure. Yeah. And it's, it, I think it's awesome. Uh, people should be able to do whatever it is that their, their heart, you know, compels them to do, you know, whatever sex or gender or whatever they, they choose to identify with. But at the same time, I do, I think that there's some baby being thrown out with bath water on that, you know, where when we look at a a population as a whole, men and women have shocking general differences in predilections. And then we have individuals that don't sort into those specific buckets. So going back to a super traditional society where men only do this, women only do that, that would suck like that. That's not cool. Mm -hmm. But now we've kind of flipped it so far that it's like, well, I have two daughters and like, they're a ton of fun. They're really, really cool. But God, they are so different than boys. Like little boys are just dirty little heathens. They, uh-huh. they, they <laughs> God, the nose picking and the butts and, and like, they just fight and scrap. And mm-hmm. my daughters pick at each other too, but it's really different. Both of them do Brazilian jujitsu. They're both very physical, but boys are just different. Like uh-huh. they're generally so different. And every once in a while you have a kid that, that, that is, He's male in his body, but more feminine in, in kind of his, his sure. affect and approach. And we should have plenty of room for that. But, but it's got to cut both ways. We need to have the dexterity to understand the population level tendencies while also leaving room for the individual nuances and yeah. allow people to, to go into that and not demonize or, or run down either one of those. You know, it, it, it's, uh, man, if you're your electrical box blows up and, and it's 110 degrees. Um, you want some competent electrician to go get into your, that, that electrical box and deal with high voltage and, and get your shit put back together. Generally, that's going to be a man. Sometimes it will be a woman, but mm-hmm. either way you want someone who is cocksure about what they're doing so that they put your house together in a way so it doesn't fucking burn down, you know, and <laughs> boom, we, uh-huh. you know, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well put. I love the, the way that you put that. I Okay, so I got a few more things and, and we can tie things off here. And I'll right. try to be shorter in my answers. I, I tend to be longer, <laughs> so sorry. But they are thorough and very intelligent answers and, and I've been enjoying them. So uh, I've got a diet and I want you, I'm going to tell you what it is and feel free to tear it apart and tell me what's wrong with it. But I generally I eat pretty healthy. I'm a fit guy, right? So my kind of rule when shopping is I don't, I don't buy... Rarely do I ever buy meat, dairy, or gluten products for the house, and rarely any processed things. Right, so a lot of fruits, a lot of or a lot of vegetables, some fruits, and and nuts and grains and things. And so now my daily diet looks like this: I'll I'll get up and I'll have a water with lime, fresh lime squeezed in it, and then I'll have a green tea, organic green tea after that, which is what I'm drinking now. And then I put the tea bag in my thing of water here mm-hmm. just to kind of get some flavor and then and this is this is because of you guys actually right after that i have one of these guys element um element uh pack like I put it, yeah. yeah electrolytes and i put it in my water and so about noon to one or one thirty or so then i'll have uh, an avocado smoothie with organe protein in it and uh, vegan organe protein and then that takes me till about 3 to 4.30 or so, and I'll have the first meal, which quite often is either a salad with nuts and apples and mushrooms and some olive oil on top of it, or some fried, cooked, organic vegetables with some grains. And then usually in the evening, then I might have another element or um, you know maybe some almond milk or something in the afternoon. Uh, and then in the evening, just maybe some nuts or anything if I need any more calories mm-hmm. and prunes or raisins mixed with that. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, pros, cons, anything I'm lacking, anything I need? So all of this stuff is always dependent on who you are and what you're trying to do. Like, okay. uh, you know, folks are like, should I go keto? Should I do vegan? Should right. I do it? It's like, uh, who are you and what is your goal? And like, there's great business uh, insights in this stuff too. You know, uh, my really good friend, David Dooley, who would also be another phenomenal uh, person for the show. Um, mm-hmm. He says, first things first, second things never. And so <laughs> okay. it, it, it's just like, if you triage something and like, this is your most important thing. So you look like a healthy fit guy. So like body composition is probably not like your number one thing, like maybe just like optimizing cognitive performance and, and long-term health. It's kind mm-hmm. of your, your, your main jam. So, okay. So we've delineated that. And how long have you been doing this? Uh, for the most part, other than adding element to my diet, which you guys just sent out to me, um, uh, for the most part, over a year. Over a okay, year, over a year. Yeah. Um, and so before it, was just the same with a couple meals in the day. Okay. I've just scratched okay. it down to one big one, bigger one. So, you know, so you've got a compare and contrast. You had a previous uh, program. You tweaked mm-hmm. it. I assume you like the results with mm-hmm. this. Like, it sounds very easy in that you're not tied to like this conveyor belt of food. It mm-hmm. sounds like you kind of eat when you get hungry. It doesn't sound like you have a whole you know, like crushing degree of hunger in, in general and all that Mm -hmm. type of stuff. So it seems good, you know, um, in general, the vast majority of people that, that I experience, um, I would see that as being too low in protein in general. And people will tend to then overeat 
on the edges of that. So mm -hmm. going back to our evolutionary biology, there's this concept protein leverage hypothesis. All organisms seem to eat to a protein minimum. So protein rich foods tend to be disproportionately rich in, in nutrients. So mm -hmm. even if we look at grazing animals, um, they will tend to prefer clover over grass because the clover is, is richer in nitrogen and, and protein. They can okay. overdo it too. But, um, in general, when we hit a protein minimum, then nutrient wise, we've taken care of everything else. Like it, mm -hmm. it, it's just kind of like a, a one-stop shop. It's a Pareto 80, 20 deal. Like if you get the protein on okay. point, then generally everything else kind of kind of falls into place. Uh, as part of the Healthy Rebellion, we do three resets a year where we pe people focus on sleep, food, movement, and community. Kind of my my idealized four pillars of health. And folks who have body composition goals, they're never eating enough protein. Like mm -hmm. they they just they're, they're never eating enough protein. I have folks that like, oh Rob, I read your book ten years ago. I follow your stuff. And then when we have them weigh and measure their, their food, they're like 25 to 50% deficient in protein, protein from what I would like them to see. Okay. Now here's a caveat though. Now we've got you, you are doing this protocol. You seem to be fit, healthy, have good performance, both physically and cognitively. Mm -hmm. And so it's working. My only thing there would be, uh, I guess, two thoughts. You could always tinker with the higher protein intervention and, you know, more like fish or, or, you know, other animal products are usually an easy way to go. You could go more vegan based, um, you know, uh, concentrated, uh, uh, protein sources so mm -hmm. that we're not overly accentuating calories, but we're increasing the protein intake. So you could do a run of just upping your protein. The, the boundaries that I like to play with is a gram of protein per pound of lean body mass all the way up to a gram of protein per pound of body weight. Okay. So for easy numbers, if the person is 200 pounds, 10% body fat, the gram of protein per pound of lean body mass, they would be 180 grams of protein, gram of protein per pound of body weight, 200 grams of protein. Okay. So some per day, per day. Yeah. Per some, day. some okay. window in there. And, okay. and I see people really do remarkably well with that. Okay. So what, what you're doing is working clearly but we never really know is the better thing, the next thing I'm going to tinker with. Yeah. And it could be that you give this a run for two months and you're like, eh, my digestion isn't as good. My energy isn't as good. And then we turn the clock back to, to where you were before. So even I'm kind of, you know, I'm like known as being the paleo guy and I'm into mm -hmm. keto and all this type of stuff. Here's a good example. Like hopefully that this, this is really impactful for me, but it, it, hopefully it, it helps other people. When, if you were to look up, what is the half-life of caffeine in humans? The half-life mm -hmm. is if I consume a hundred milligrams of caffeine, how long until I only have 50 milligrams of caffeine in my system? Like my liver has metabolized half the, 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 uh, the caffeine out of there. The average for humans is eight hours. Okay. Some humans, their half-life is four hours right. and some people it's 36 hours. Wow. So there's an almost tenfold difference in the, the clearance rate of caffeine from one human being to another. Mm -hmm. And there are some people that are like, I could drink a coffee and then go to bed. And those are the quick metabolizers. And then there are people who will say, if I had a cup of coffee today, I won't sleep until three days from now. Right. Those are the slow metabolizers. I don't think there's that big of a spread in like macronutrient needs, but we're talking about a tenfold difference 
and caffeine clearance, what if there's a two to fourfold difference in what is optimal for protein, carbs, fat for a given human being? Mm -hmm. That means like what you need could be shockingly different than what I need. And, um, and the challenge for me is having simple heuristics, simple stories to help people just get started. Because I mean, we've dug into some fairly deep, complex stuff here. Mm-hmm. We're barely scratching the surface. You can't throw the whole, the whole ball of wax at people day one. They're just going to be overwhelmed. They're like, okay, right. you just talked at me for three hours and I, I still have no idea where to go. You right. know, I have nothing actionable that I can do with it. But the, the takeaway is that I think that there is, um, there are some great starting places. I think starting protein centric, figure out if you run better on carbs or fat or a combo okay. and then work out from there. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a, you know, it, it, you have to have somewhere to start people. Some people start folks with a very low protein plant-based vegan type approach, and that's going to work great for some and probably not well for others. And I find with this more protein centric approach works great for, you know, most. And then for some, Mm -hmm. it's an absolute disaster and we have to completely rejigger and abandon ship and and do something entirely different. Yeah. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Okay. I got another question. High performance tips. We always ask our guest, Rob, what's your daily routine? Like what's your daily schedule? Like for a guy like you? Oh man. Um, it's been interesting because we did just move and we moved so much further north than what I've ever really lived. Like the okay. daylight difference is really interesting, but I tend to go to bed reasonably early. We, we have small kids and, uh, well, there's seven and nine now, so not as, as small, but, um, uh, you know, like this time of year I go to bed maybe nine and I do some reading mm-hmm. and then I'll just fall, you know, I have a Kindle and I wear some blue blockers I'm reading that. And then eventually I'm just like, Oh God, I'm done. I turn it off, pull my blue blockers off and I'm, I'm out. And it, it's like a ninja blow dart. Like it, it, <laughs> it, I have a really good, you know, go to bed routine on that. Um, I'll get up usually, uh, if I go to bed a little early, I'll wake up four thirty or five o'clock. If I go to bed a little later, like closer to that nine thirty or 10 where I fall asleep, I'll wake up, but I try to never use an alarm clock unless I have to travel wake up about six or six 30, mm-hmm. uh, usually a cup of coffee, um, do some meditation. My wife got me into the Ziva meditation. Um, Emily Fletcher's work. I have tinkered with like everything under the sun and this thing just stuck in it. It's, uh, it's been as transformative to my life as like ancestral eating was for my health overall. Like it, it's okay. one of these like three main transformative things that I've, I've gone through in my life. Um, my, if I can do it, my best creative time is the morning. So ideally I do my creative writing and thinking. If I'm reading some articles, I do that. It's hard to do though, because the demands of, of the business obligations, a lot of times like some fires have popped up overnight or like members of the team have stuff that I need to review and and check off on and they're waiting for me. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times I have to do that it's important work, but I would put it more menial. Like it's, it's not like my a level work. So sometimes I have to do that early. I would love to punt all of that until the afternoon, like ideal circumstance. I would be really creative in the morning. Um, I'll eat breakfast around 9. AM usually a big whack of protein, uh, usually some nuts, uh, with that. Sometimes I have some fruit with it. Like it kind of depends on, on how frisky of a jujitsu day I'm going to have. We usually do jujitsu three or about three days a week, sometimes a little bit more. 
that happens at noon. Um, we we're, we're there for two hours because we have the the skill part of the class and then an open mat. We come home, feed and water everybody. Mm-hmm. And then ideally I would do like the low level, like email, you know, that type of stuff. I've completely abandoned social media. Like I have accounts, but I, I write stuff, give it to my assistant. She posts. And so up, I, yeah. it's broadcast only. I just can't deal with the, the negativity on there anymore. Yeah. Um, and then in the evening, uh, you know, so I'll sometimes do lunch, but I don't always do lunch. Sometimes it's a little snack and then I'll do dinner with the kids again, kind of protein centric. If it was a hard jujitsu day, I might do a little bit more fruit uh, with the protein, but I I'm, I'm kind of peri carnivore. Like I have some GI problems and like, if I ate the big salad that you had, like I would destroy your bathroom. Like you would need a, <laughs> a priest and an uh-huh. exorcism after that. Like you would never want to use that thing again. Mm-hmm. And this is just some of my, where I've arrived at long-term with my, my gut health, like kind right. of a lowish fiber diet really works well for me berries, melons, citrus, I do well with, um, apples and pears will absolutely wreck me. So I've just kind of figured out some, some things that I do and do not do well with. Um, the evenings we will do some kin stretch, like some mobility work. So we'll get it, you know, the whole family will get out in the living room floor and we've been listening to books on tape, uh, you know, kind of audible type stuff. So there are these, uh, great, um, kids books, kind of um kind of lord of the rings-esque like they're fantasy adventure type things but they're uh, one of them uh, bark of the the bog owl like a, it's a three book series they're amazing like the the people reading them do multiple voices and they do a little bit of sound effects with it it's very minimal um production but they're fun and like they're mm-hmm. super engaging so while we're doing some mobility work the whole family is just hanging out and uh and that's most days, you know, there, uh, we'll get out it, now that we just moved, we have a lake in our backyard. And so we go paddle boarding and do some, some nice. stuff like that. I lift weights like two or three days a week. Um, but that's, that's the bulk of the, the stuff. And then I intersperse business calls, uh, interviews and stuff like that. Like I, I consolidate all of my, um, interviews like this onto Thursdays. So I just kind of stack those nice. up and, and do all those in one day. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. Okay, Rob, man, I've really enjoyed this show. I, I've enjoyed chatting with you and picking your brain and learning all the uh, amazing things you've done with your business and your life and, and learning about health and some more high-performance tips. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you have going on, where's the best place that they can do that at? Uh, robwolf.com is kind of the main main clearinghouse for stuff. I do a lot of writing for Element, and that's drinkelement.com. And then, mm-hmm. I, again, I do have social media presence and I push stuff out there. I just don't answer much of anything. And if folks <laughs> want to interface with me, um, joining the healthy rebellion is, is a, a good way to get access to me. But then we have our Q and a podcast once a week. It's called the healthy rebellion radio. Mm-hmm. Folks can submit questions. I try to answer all of them. We, we jam through as many of them as we, we can. And I, uh, the way that I continue to learn it is from the questions that people ask, because when you have a couple of 10,000, couple of hundred thousand people looking at the world and noodling on what's going on. Like they, that, that's where your, your, your uh, news aggregator occurs is where people find something new, find something interesting, get a cool idea. And then they ping it to me. And, and uh, I do the best I can to unpack that and put, put my own thoughts on it. Very cool. 
Rob, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Huge honor. Thank you. And listeners, we're going to wrap up there. Thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high-performance productivity coaching and our six, seven, and eight-figure private masterminds. These are all designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to help you scale rapidly and grow. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. And we'll see you all on the next episode.